Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 180, recorded on June 30th of 2023. I am your semi-absent host, Don Kamarechka, and I do apologize for this episode being a little bit late. Uh, reason being quite a pragmatic one. The fans in my laptop died or was in a state of death, and it sounded like a turboprop aircraft in front of my desk. So not exactly good podcasting material. Uh, so we're back, we are repaired, and we're ready for a great episode, especially because we have a new guest host in the co-pilot seat. And uh, I welcome to this podcast a friend of mine, a fellow photographer and journalist, Andy Day. Andy, how are you? I'm good. Thank you. I'm honored, excited to be here. I'm, I'm conscious that I have some very big shoes to fill in the space of uh, uh, Steve and uh, the likes of Jordan Drake. So uh, I hope I live <laughs> up to expectations. I, I'm certain that you will, but uh, if people aren't familiar with you, your voice, and what you do in the photographic space, why don't you give somebody the uh, uh, listening the uh, the alligator the elevator pitch uh, of who you are and what you do? So I've been photographing since 2003. Started on film, moved to digital. Now slowly moving back to film. It feels uh, around about six years ago I started writing for F Stoppers. I think I've written more than a thousand articles. Uh, there was a stage where I was writing one article per day for F Stoppers, and I was so deeply immersed that I think about four years ago I could draw you a list of every single Sony FE mount lens. That is no longer the case. I'm pleased to say. So while I still write for F Stoppers. I now work for as a writer for a small uh, in camera industry company. I'm not going to say which one. Uh, we discussed this previously. I'm very much involved in, in the world of photography, but I'm kind of reluctant to say which uh, company I work for as much as I love them uh, and as much as I think they make amazing products. Um, not publicizing who I work for gives me a degree of freedom as a journalist mostly because I like being a bit provocative in some of the stuff that uh, that I write for F-Stoppers or say on Twitter from time to time. You can be completely honest about any and every company with no favoritism if you keep other ties silent, correct? Exactly. That's kind of what I'm hoping for. I mean, not that I'm picking fights left, right and center, but one of the stories we'll touch on today um, kind of means that you know, there are then no repercussions for the company that I work for uh, if I'm vocal about this other company. So, yeah, <laughs> well, we got some see. fun stories to, to talk about today. And, uh, you know, they're all over the map in terms of large companies, startups, AI, copyright. And the one that we're going to start with, I knowing your connection with F-Stoppers, I chose an F-Stoppers article to kick things off. Uh, written by Ilya Ovchar, if I'm pronouncing their name correctly. Um, here is how I upgrade my gear as a professional photographer. And I think everybody goes on a different path in terms of how they grow as a photographer. You know, I, I've known people that they'll upgrade to every incremental camera body uh, because that in their mind will make them a better photographer in so much that I've had uh, people in the camera club that I used to be uh, a part of back in Canada that they would completely jump ship to a different brand because X brand uh, wasn't updating enough and Y brand came up with a new camera a few months later and they would uh, exchange all of their gear for the new system and then two months later X brand again is now the champion and it's just a waste of money going back and forth. So uh, part of it is budgetary constraints. Part of it is sanity uh, and understanding where you fall within this. Now, uh, of course, um, Ilya was uh, writing more as a studio photographer, you know, somebody that uh, would benefit greatly from uh, upgrades to lighting and using different modifiers and eventually coming down to lenses and cameras. But where do you fall on this whole upgrade path idea and what makes the most sense for you? So I think I've upgraded my camera body twice in the last, I'm going to say, nine years. I bought a 5D Mark II in something like 2008, and then a 6 That's when it was Mark released, II. and that's when yeah, I got one, too. Wow. Yeah. yeah, and then a 6D Mark I. Uh, I can't remember when I bought that, and then, then a Sony a7 III, and it's the a7 III that's still ticking along quite nicely uh, to this day. That was probably 2019. So in terms of cameras, um, not 
very often. I mean, I'm not shooting full-time professionally, uh, so for me, it, it's not really a need. But, I, I, you know, I, I, this is we live in an industry, we, we exist in an industry that is constantly pushing new gear. You know, we have influencers in their 30s making gear look sexy for you know, a lot of guys in their 40s, 50s, and 60s, all of this aspirational <laughs> content that's put out there. There is a culture of upgrade. And these narratives of competition between the likes of Nikon, Canon, and Sony, they're manufactured to a degree. Obviously, these companies compete with each other, but you don't need to look far uh, on YouTube to find headlines of, you know, Canon's missing out, you know, falling behind, Nikon's failed, Sony's pushing it. It's, it's relentless so we're if if you have any exposure to the photographic industry you're constantly being told that you need to upgrade and i think there's yeah a, a culture of consumption and to a degree there's a certain element of conspicuous consumption as well obviously you are wanting to have that shiny new toy around your your neck that might be compensating for other parts of your life let's Maybe, <laughs> there yeah. is we, that we cannot we cannot relate to that to some degree there is you know and there is something nice about buying new things we are people who enjoy technology who appreciate the work that goes into it and you know there's no harm in in if you can afford it buying new stuff but of course it does tend to become a bit all-consuming and uh yeah fear of missing out and the obsession with gear becomes quite exhausting. And having written relentlessly for F-stoppers for, for five years, you know, I, it, it's nice to step back from that occasionally and realize that, no, you don't, you don't need the newest stuff all the time. Unless, and, and again, it really depends on, on what you're shooting and how you're shooting. If you own a business as a studio photographer, you don't need a brand new camera every year, every two years, every five years. Uh, so uh, one of my former colleagues at F-Stoppers is a guy called Scott Chusino. I'm going to, I think English, most English speakers will say Chikino, but I think it's Italian and it's, it's Chusino. Um, and he's a very successful food photographer based in the UK. And I think I'm right in saying that he shoots most of his stuff on a Canon uh, 5DSR. And he uses a camera for eight or 10 years and he spends £1,500 on a camera, and he has two or three of them, maybe four or five, as backups when he needs them. And he's, you know, he, he's got an excellent YouTube channel, which I highly recommend, Tin House Studios. And he goes into the details of what it's like to own gear, to buy gear, upgrade gear, as a professional studio photographer. And I think there's a lot the minimum, of lessons to be learned from stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. you know, he, he says the minimum you can spend on a camera to be a professional photographer is £250. So $250, say. You could get a 5D Mark II, uh, as long as you've got tethering, live view, and a little bit of burst mode. He's got cameras that have half a million shutter actuations and are still going strong. You know, as long as you've got right. 17, 20, megapi 20 megapixels, you can shoot a billboard. So Absolutely says, you get, can. So uh, now I, I, I want to interject here because you know part of the reasons that that I upgrade is is not necessarily to replace but to augment. You mentioned that hmm. uh, you know he was shooting with multiple camera bodies. You know some are backups and and yet you might keep them around for a little while. Um, there are certain non technological pieces of equipment uh, like. Uh, crab clamps and C-stands and tripods and, and that kind of stuff, that they're almost like they're forever purchases. They're never going to break and their usefulness will never run out. And so, you know, if you find the need to get more of that because you physically, like in your space, need more of that non-core lens and camera gear, I think that's always going to be money well spent. Uh, if you can envision a use case where you needed that extra C-stand and it's just not there for whatever purpose, that is always good money being spent on on that particular piece of equipment as a professional. Um, the, the issue that I uh, run into is with a lot of people looking at the MTF charts and looking at the test images and uh, and, and reading all of the, uh, the sensor quality output ratings and uh, the ISO noise performance and so many of these things and getting this delusional thought in your mind. And I, I got to remind myself about this often enough myself. I think it's just human nature. Is that, you know, if I take this award-winning shot that I haven't taken yet, again, so it's like a delusional thing. I, I'm looking at to the forward of stuff that I have not yet made. And I'm thinking that if I nailed it, 
if I got that perfect eagle in flight uh, skimming across the water or what have you, but if I got it perfect and my camera had better performance, better, uh, frames per second, ISO performance, resolution, etc., then my work at the end of the day would be better. And I have to continuously tell myself that that is not the case and that my work should stand on its own regardless of what camera that I'm using so long as it passes that bar of acceptability. And as you mentioned, you know, the cost of a camera being uh, 2,500 uh, pounds, you're uh, originally from the UK, um, so that's going to be more in Canadian or US dollars by a bit. But um, you don't need the flagship and you don't need the current flagship either, right? That's kind of the message. No, there's, de there's definitely some truth to that. And uh, the, the flip side to that, I, I mean, this debate get, happens endlessly in photography circles. Uh, you know, the new camera is not going to make you a better photographer, but it will. All, there is a degree of truth to that. And it will always come down to what your business is and what you're shooting. And hopefully the photographer then making sound judgments, uh, you know, based on what their needs are as a photographer. But, you know, people say, oh, yeah, well, you know, a new camera won't make you a better photographer, but I shoot a lot of events. And moving from the Canon 6D to the Sony a7 III was a big step up in terms of performance of autofocus and frame rate, obviously. So from an event, I'm getting more keepers. So by owning a new camera, I'm able to deliver more quality photographs to that event. So right. therefore, I am a better photographer. So a new camera has made me a better photographer. So... It will always come down Blasphemy. to what you're shooting, how you're shooting. No, yeah. uh, you are, you're right. You know, in, in, the, in the terms of the technicality and the performance of the gear and the chaotic environments that you're in, yes, I can understand that better autofocus gives you more keepers. Um, for the more calculated studio work, uh, for the idea that, you know, as... Um, as photographers, we have the concept of, of art. Just like a painter. And they buy better brushes doesn't necessarily make their output better. I mean, maybe marginally so. But at the end of the day, um, the artistic tool with the artistic intent will eventually arrive at the art that we create. Uh, and the tools are not the biggest part of the equation, I think, is the takeaway. Yep, absolutely. And when you say that, I think what I photograph today, I, I spend a lot of time photographing in the forest. Uh, actually, I never thought I'd become a landscape photographer, but that's what most of my work is these days. And you think, oh, well, for landscape photography, you want a nice wide, a nice zoom, good, you know, really sharp. Um, but actually, I shoot most of my images on a $200 Chinese manual focus lens and a, uh, and a Russian 50 mil, the, uh, the Helios, I forget the name now, it's sitting right next to me. Um, yeah, Helios 44 M4, which is terrible quality, manual focus, very soft, but <laughs> that's, that's what gives me the results I need. And I've, that gives you, know. you the ethereal feeling, right? I, I was seeing that, um, uh, one of the, uh, lens manufacturers, I forget, um, or filter, uh, people put out some mist filters in the last week and it just kind of scrolled through my radar. It's like, you know what? I don't need a mist filter cause that's not the stylistic effect that I'm going for. And if I wanted that, I would just use a cheap old lens and rather than degrading my, it seems so weird where you've got the most precision engineered optics you could possibly purchase. And then you're going to put a filter on the front of that to degrade its quality back to 1950s, because that's the look that you're after. And yeah, it, it is hilarious. And it's interesting to note that we're not the first to do this. And you can go back a lot further than the 1950s. Oh, there's put through Vaseline the, on your lens to yeah, create a really soft yeah. view. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. The pictorialists um, were, were putting stockings and adding grease to their lenses to try and match the look and feel of Impressionist painting. So, you know, it... Well, that's when that's Not in the era of photography when photography was trying to find itself, right? Uh, yeah, and it it could not be art if it was depicting reality, because then it's purely documentary, uh, and there's no artistry to it, and and that's. 
I mean, that, that's an era of photography where, you know, some of the greats started in like Ansel Adams, and then they evolved from that to turn photography into the art form that we know it in the, the more modern sense um, that it's always evolving. Don't get me wrong. Photography is constantly evolving even today. Um, but it didn't truly become its own art form during that pictorialist era. And I find it just fascinating how it's evolved over that time and how we can discuss all of the gear now today and how we're still trying to be artsy with it yep and i mean it brings us back to whether you're doing you're photographing to create art if you're a hobbyist if you're semi-professional if you're a professional uh, how does that gear fit into your workflow and into your business and again i I point you back to tin house studios uh youtube channel strongly recommended if you are looking to set up a photography business because he talks about this stuff in a very pragmatic way in terms of stop spending stupid amounts of money on stuff that you don't need and i think it's valid advice even if you're not going to be a professional just thinking yeah do i need to spend four hundred dollars on a microphone or am i going to get by with a two hundred dollar microphone you know basic stuff like that and but but also a microphone is one of those things that if you get a good one like i've had this heil pr40 for a long time and uh it it performs it performs well and unless i physically damage it it's likely never to die um, so, I mean, there, there's a, an argument on either side. Again, I wouldn't yep. have spent $4,000 on a microphone. That would have been ridiculous. And you can, uh, but that's, that's not, not my, uh, it's not spend, being pragmatic for my use cases. Yeah. Save the money and spend $4,000 on a trip to Norway. You don't, yes. Yeah. Obviously take a good camera with you, but you know. Well, and, and that's, gonna, that's an important take- consideration too. You're spending the money on the subject. And that's what I spend a lot on. I'll, I'll source out some exotic butterfly wing uh, and photograph the scales of it. And uh, I'm referring you know, specifically to the Madagascan sunset moth, which uh, in just over a month is going to be issued that image uh, on a United States postage stamp. So oh, wow. uh, it was, yeah, it's quite a bizarre honor for me because I'm not American. Um, and uh, <laughs> so, hey, you know what? Whatever works, I'm, I'm happy about it. Uh, August 10th is when that stamp gets uh, issued by Congratulations, that's awesome. Thank you. But it wouldn't have been possible unless I was specifically seeking out the unique subject that I was after. I have a formicarium behind me that in it has a, uh, a slightly venomous Australian queen ant. Uh, the green head ant and it's got an iridescent green body to it. Haven't seen it for about a week. It might be dead, but um, I, the thing is if, if that is a success and uh, for those that aren't familiar with ants, it is a semi-claustral species, which means I have to continuously feed it during the colony foundation period. And I've been doing that. I've been catching bugs and putting it in there and making sure there's water and everything else. Um, and if that is going to be a successful uh, subject, then I would have put in a significant amount of time and effort uh, and a bit of money in order to get an ant colony for which I would have these beautiful, tiny, iridescent green ants as photographic subjects that would make the difference. Whether or not that works, I am still spending that time and effort focusing ra- on the subject rather than on the gear that will be used to take the pictures at the end of the day. And I'm guessing that you don't need that much. Uh, I mean, the, the emphasis for you is probably going to be lighting and grips and other stuff rather than necessarily the lens and the sensor. Is yeah. That right? And I mean, a- any macro lens will work. I've done some uh, published work with the the antiquated but still very good and inexpensive Tamron 90 millimeter macro lens. Uh, right now, my current workhorse is the Laowa. 90 millimeter macro and uh, that's manual everything and it's uh, optically really crisp it's perfect i don't mind manual and it's fine it'll probably never break uh compared to uh more over engineered equivalents but i mean it, it's little stuff like and if you've uh, if any of the listeners have you know listened to the very end of the podcast where we get to the picks of the week i throw in like little mirrors and little reflectors and things that's a light modifier quite simply um that are inexpensive ways to be creative in your space and i think those make more of a difference than the big purchases do um in terms of the final output of your creativity. Absolutely. I think that's a lesson for all of us. Uh, But we are, at the same time, a broad church. And I think people 
get annoyed when they see other people spending a lot of money on equipment that they don't need. And I think there's some snobbishness to that. It's like my my uncle is the classic, uh, you know, guy guy in his sixties or seventies who bought uh, a very expensive camera with a very expensive lens and barely takes it out, shoots his grand uh, his you know, some, some young family members, and that's about it. And I look at his gear and I'm like, I would never spend that amount of money, but he gets so much joy out of it, and he. You know, it's sometimes it's about the process of buying, like you know, just diving into yeah, the it, it becomes a status and geeking out. Yeah, uh, and more than that, I think you know we we enjoy the tools that we use. I mean, my I'm not saying my my maybe my Sony A7 III is not a very good example of that because it's the most boring, uninspiring box with a few buttons on it you can imagine. <laughs> but you know, we 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 cherish these things. They become an extension of us when we're out in the field photographing. So, you know, we, there's there's a reason we become so invested in this technology. And let's talk about some of those investments because onto our next story, we've got Zeiss in the news, uh, which was originally rumored to be leaving the photography business. And uh, apparently that's not the case. Zeiss has combated that rumor and has stated that they're not leaving the photography biz, although they do admit that their latest camera really didn't sell and we're probably not going to see a successor to this. Now, uh, I think you've got some opinions on this, Andy, so I will let you opine first. Well, it, it, I mean, you should probably just run over exactly what happened. So a, an Australian distributor was talking to a customer and then the customer posted on a Fred Miranda forum that uh, Zeiss was ending its lens production. Uh, and this kind of ran around the internet with Petapixel then posting an article, which then got updated with a statement from Zeiss. And I should add now that I think Zeiss is an amazing company. Its history is incredible. I've stayed in a hotel just down the road from the factory purely by coincidence. I didn't know that Zeiss was based in Jena, but in one of my various trips across Europe, suddenly we, we drove past uh, where the company was founded. They still have a very large facility there with you know the huge uh, Zeiss badge on, on the side of the building. Um, and despite being this this huge company with a big history. I'm not sure that they're used to being in the news and issuing statements in response to rumors. So this is the quote from Zeiss that was updated to the original story uh, when it was posted to Petpixel. And they said, but we have to face the facts. In the first months of the pandemic, the global market declined significantly and irreversibly, and companies have to adapt. And of course, we are bringing our unique expertise to mobile imaging, because it is also clear that consumers, as well as ambitious and professional photographers, increasingly prefer their smartphones for all-day photography. Now, as someone who writes press releases, and not that I have to write many emergency statements to the press, I I think this, when I read it, I, I thought, that's a very long way of saying, oh, no comment. Yeah, uh, it's, rumors, it's a damage is, control type of statement, yeah, it, I think. It, it, it didn't feel positive. So then that didn't really help things. And then you know, just a few days ago, a, another article was posted with, with more details from Zeiss saying, no, we've got plans. And I think you know, people are, are quick to forget that, sure, they, they might not be producing the 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 Battises and the Sonas and, and whatever else at the moment for Sony full-frame cameras, but they're still working with Sony. You know, the, They've got a big partnership uh, with Sony. And, and that's one it, of those partnerships that is somewhat um, mired in corporate entanglement in that um, sort of like Panasonic and Leica, um, if you buy a Zeiss branded camera, is Zeiss actually making it or did they sign off on the design specifications and Sony's the manufacturer that has been approved based on their manufacturing requirements? Um, and that partnership extends also to the mobile space with Sony uh, smartphones as well. And who I don't know if Zeiss has any other partners with uh, other smartphone manufacturers besides Sony. Maybe it's an exclusive contract. Uh, my mind doesn't go all the way over there. But I do know that Zeiss does a lot of expensive um, low production stuff in uh, industrial imaging, in medical imaging. I mean, these are the things that will cost a lot and they'll sell a few, but that's a space that I think that they are, they are well into. And so if they have flagship lenses for the latest cameras, you know, if they uh, adapt stuff for um, the, the Z 
Mountain, the L Mountain, other things like that, that there will be people willing to buy that equipment at that price. But there's, it's never going to be a huge market. And they are realizing that that market is indeed shrinking. And at some point, it's going to be a couple of token lenses. This is my prediction. Uh, and not a full range of optics, uh, unless you're getting into the scientific space. Yeah, uh, I, I would agree. And to my knowledge, I think Zeiss originally partnered with Nokia, Nokia, depending on how you want to pronounce it. And then in 2020, they signed a big deal with Sony, well, an extension of their deal with Sony to work on the Xperia series of cameras. And correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's 2020. Um, and that has their T-Star coating on the various lenses. And yeah, I mean, like you said, the Zeiss for them... Um, production, you know, consumer lenses for the photography market, probably not a huge part of their business. You know, they're making electron microscopes, they're making medical imaging equipment and, and various other bits and pieces. Their partnership with Sony goes back to all the way back to 1996. You know, this is a this is a long-standing relationship. And it's interesting to look at when they're producing premium lenses for Sony full frame cameras, which is between 2006 and, and 2000 and I think I can't remember when the last one was I think it's as far back as 2019 but when you think about the introduction when Sony was quite aggressively pushing the a7 I think that's 2013 the a7 II is 2014 at that time what lenses did Sony have they needed a partner to add some degree of legitimacy some credibility to their offering so when the a7 III came along you know, I think that only Sony's I can't remember when the 24 to 70 f 2.8 G or G Master was released, but prior to that, it was Zeiss that did the 24 to 70 f 4. It was Zeiss that was doing all of these really nice primes. It was Zeiss that did the 16 to 35 f 2.8, and that was before Sony started manufacturing properly their own lenses. And Sony was yeah. always going to do that, and I think Zeiss knew that Sony was always going to do that. So now, in 2023, why would Sony? want Zeiss to make premium lenses that compete with Sony products. The I same thing is happening with Panasonic, right? Because when they were in the micro four third space, Leica was not in that space and they had partnered with Leica on a number of different projects. But um, I've got a, a 45 millimeter uh, Leica branded uh, macro lens for my uh, Lumix GX9. Beautiful lens, exceptional. I don't think that they could have made it better. Um, but when they moved into the full uh, full frame space and the L-Mount Alliance and Leica was manufacturing their own cameras and lenses within that same format, Panasonic is no longer allowed to use the Leica brand on that gear. And that's not to say that the pro branded um, uh, Lumix lenses, like I've got their uh, 50 millimeter F1.4 and it is a stunningly beautiful piece of work in terms of equipment. Um, doesn't have the Leica brand on it because, you know, it's just the, the evolution of those partnerships over time. Yeah, and I, I, you know, Zeiss will not have gone into that partnership without realizing that that partnership for those specific lenses isn't going to, you know, they're not expecting it to last forever. Things change. And yeah. I mean, this is, all of this is pure speculation. This is me speculating even further. It wouldn't surprise me if Zeiss were getting a kickback on every G Master being sold today. Because Interesting theory. Um, I, pure speculation, and people will say, "Oh no, different factories, different coatings, different you know production, whatever." Maybe, but I would imagine that the need for Sony to be able to produce glass on scale, at, you know, in such a short a period of time, they will have licensed some technology from Zeiss. Maybe so. Patents are everything. Yeah. Yeah. And so like the, the Zeiss T-Star coatings, for example, I mean, I'm sure that's patented. Um, and how many patents does a large company like Zeiss have from their back catalog of uh, optical engineering manufacturing processes? It's not just the end lens, but it could they could have a patent on the machine they designed to form the glass itself. Uh, and unless you find a completely different way to engineer the same equipment, it's probably better that you just pay the company that's already done it for you, right? Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And, you know, Zeiss are experts in this. And like I said, they've been doing it for 165 years. Um, and yeah, they, they, 
like I say, I, it's always fun to speculate on these things and don't take, <laughs> don't read too much into any of this. But I would be, uh, their partnership will continue. Um, you know, the the Carl Zeiss lens on the ZV1 Mark II is a sign that you know that 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 relationship is still strong and not going anywhere. I'll I'll leave you that final word on it, and uh, and we'll move on we, to some other well, interesting can, stories too. Unless you wanted br- to add more to the final word. Well, I just wanted to say the the Zeiss ZX1. There will not be a Zeiss ZX2, which makes makes <laughs> yeah. me very sad because it gets. I'm frustrated because you know I I run, wrote a fun article a couple of years ago complaining that my mother's fridge was better at. Uh, was better connected than my Sony camera. Why can I send images from my from a fridge and not from a camera? And the ZX came, ZX One came along to try and fix that, and they got a lot of stick. And it, I get a bit frustrated when the camera industry complains about a lack of innovation, of thinking outside the box, of trying something new, and then you get Zeiss come along and do something completely, completely unheard of. And then they get a you know, of I, saying, I think oh, though what a, what th- this kind of ties idea. into what we just talked about um, about patents. How much of the tech that went into the ZX One does Zeiss now own? Right, because that was new. It was innovative. There's a lot of stuff that went into that camera that I don't think existed in cameras before in terms of connectivity. Um, and I I wonder if that will be a little nest egg for them moving forward, sort of as Kodak had all of the patents. You know, one of the biggest early, um, uh, I guess, breadwinners in the photographic industry was Casio, because Casio had one of the biggest patent portfolios of anybody. Wow. Uh, And and yeah, you know, it's, it's strange how that stuff works. So while it might have been a commercial failure, I don't think that it's going to stop being valuable for them uh, once they've gone through that process. I, I hope so. I, I hope so. I mean, they, in their comment to Petapixel a few days ago, they, they said they learned a lot from the process. And people saying, oh, well, they've obviously lost loads of money. They won't have produced that camera without, you know, without understanding that it's potentially going to be a huge flop. I, I mean, I love the fact that they gambled on this product. I love the fact that it existed. I wrote to them and said, please send me uh, a, a, a version to test. I never heard back. Uh, I... And I don't blame them. I mean, who's going to send a uh, a crazy idea out to an f-stop as journalist? That's, that seems fair enough. But um, I'm really glad that they did it. And if we can have more, you know, very conservative companies uh, like Canon, Sony, etc., that dominate the camera street industry, taking risks like that, then uh, all the better. Well, I think, you know, Canon produced the stereoscopic fisheye lens for their new mount, and um, that I'm sure they'll sell 12 of. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> but the thing is that I, I like the fact that there are certain use cases for this this type of equipment, and it gets heralded as some sort of unicorn lens, like what was that six millimeter fisheye that Nikon produced that could see behind itself that you occasionally oh, yeah. see pop up in YouTube videos when somebody gets their hands on one for a brief period of time. Um, the Z X1 might not live up to that level of legendary status, but uh, I'm still glad that it has existed and will be forever in the lists of weird cameras that never had success moving forward, (laughs) for which we have two such weird cameras that will probably never have great success for the next story. The Mercury Stereo 12 is a medium format stereoscopic camera system, as reported by Petapixel, and so is the Ondu Ican. Uh, I'm probably mispronouncing that name, but it's a modular, large format camera designed to quote unquote grow with you. Now, these camera systems, um, they're both Kickstarters, and uh, the Mercury Stereo 12 is one that is uh, very basic. None of these cameras, by the way, contain lenses. You've got to supply that yourself. The stereoscopic medium format camera also does not contain a film back. So you've got to add that in yourself. Um, and they're not exactly inexpensive. The The first one, the stereo one, is very clearly 3D printed by, by looking at that camera design. And I got to thinking when I saw these stories, it's like, you know, if you want to spend hundreds of dollars on a film camera, you know, you can easily just take a step back in time and get one. They made them. They made them for a long time. And I have a Rolidoscope 
that is one of my favorite little cameras. It's not little. Uh, my favorite medium format cameras uh, to, to just play around with and tinker with. And I haven't been shooting it with it this year. And I promised myself that I would. And I've got the film in the drawer. And I, I'll get to that. But uh, is there a point of having an upstart company to create a new camera in the film space when we have had such great bodies to play with over the decades that film was dominant and they're all still available and honestly most of them are getting cheaper these days what say you as somebody that has been dabbling in film again i I say more is more in the same way that i loved seeing the zx1 come along i love seeing these tiny niche kickstarter projects appear Uh, i think you were discussing one with steve brazel last week the impossible the the camera that breaks breaks the laws of physics um (laughs) and you know the the opportunities for 3D printing and CNC stuff, it's just opening up new new possibilities. And I think it's, you know, I'm tempted by that, um, I forget the name now, the the one we couldn't pronounce, the Endu Ikan. I, I well, that one is I neat. That, uh, and it's yeah. well, it, it doesn't look 3D printed. It looks like it's got wood parts no. to it. Um, and, you know, that that's the kind of camera that they say it grows with you because the um, the, the bellows, you can get different size bellows uh, based on if you wanted to get a, a lengthier bellow system, which allows the, uh, the lens to be closer to the subject for macro work, or even a panoramic uh, back on it that would shoot not 4x5, which is the default uh, uh, configuration, but 4x10. So you'd shoot on a four inch by 10 inch sheet of film, which you might think that's hard to get, but I believe Ilford still does its yearly order of odd sizes for all of their, uh, their wow, films okay. as well. Um, and heck you could even be creative and, and throw two, four by fives in there and shoot a panorama on that and, and just kind of, you know, Photoshop that together if that's your end result. Uh, but it, this exists and it honestly it looks nice. If if I was to take something like that out into the field or to shoot street photography with, I would have a lot of conversations with passersby because it, it just looks like the experience of using it is something special. Um, will it be? I don't know. Um, how much I love film is de- dependent on how useful it is compared to a digital equivalent. And if there is no equivalency, like if you're shooting on large format, digital still cannot uh, recreate that identical experience, especially when you have all of the tilt and shift maneuvers that are available on some of those cameras. Um, it th- there's There is no direct comparison if you need what that thing is, whether it's a modern equivalent or something from the past. Yeah, and... You know, should we be making new versions of stuff that already exists? I th- I think there's space there, and I I think the, I mean, the stereoscopic camera is. I mean, it's niche within a niche within a niche. It's you know, you got you need a stereoscopic viewer just to look at the images. No, and you it, don't, it, it Andy. Might... You can cross your eyes. Okay, cross okay. cross view three so D is something I, fun, and I I could just be a total dork and put on those red blue anaglyph glasses. There are ways to do it. I I wonder if Jason Kummerfeld from Grainy Days, which is a, another YouTube channel that I watch, he's a film photographer. A couple of weeks ago, he published a video where he built this rig where he positioned two film cameras, one at a 90 degree angle, shooting through a sheet of, uh, what do they call it, beam splitter glass, so yes. that he could load one camera with infrared black and white film and one camera with color film, synchronize them, handheld shooting, and then in Photoshop, blend the two together to recreate Aerochrome. And it was an incredible rig. I wonder if this might be an alternative to that. So when Um, you're describing that uh, beam splitter approach, um, that's actually a really clever idea because what what, what happens is, um, you know, you can have two cameras collecting the same light at the same time. uh, And, but the, the, the issue is you will have a slight offset because each camera is going to be at a slightly different position to that light. Um, And this is actually a way that you can create uh, stereoscopic macro rigs. And they've done this to do one of the, the BBC uh, documentary series uh, was done in 3d 
I've got a copy of it on Blu-ray somewhere. I've never been able to watch it actually in 3D, but I'm fascinated by the 3D stuff. And, and I'm sure that they would have used some of this equipment because um, in order to shoot uh, broadcast quality 3D on a small scale, you'd need to have two cameras, one and then the other on a 90 degree angle with a beam splitter in order for them to have the proper offset and not lose any quality within that. That is, a again, a niche within a niche. Uh, and I've only ever seen custom made, like handmade uh, utilities for this. Um, and I've temp- been tempted to have one actually manufactured to do uh, some of that work. But who's going to pay me for the end result, right? <laughs> and and how, how big is the audience going to be that's able to actually appreciate it? And yes, the company Leia has made the LoomPad 2, which is a no glasses required 3D display. Uh, and, and that I'm hoping I can get my hands on. At some point, I don't know if they'll send me a demo or not, but uh, I had their original product. And glassless 3D can be a thing moving forward. But um, again, uh, the smallest markets for the small players. And I'm glad these both of these Kickstarters have been funded. So the, the products will exist so long as they can fulfill that commitment. And uh, more weird cameras, as we like to talk about on this podcast. More weird cameras and more film photography as well. Um, I, I don't think I've ever wanted to shoot film more than I, than I do right now. And I think the more that we see of AI imagery emerging, the more I want to go back and actually, not because it's, old or classic or or vintage or anything like that, but because there is a chemical process involved and that is part of the story of how that image comes together. So, yeah, more, more film photography generally. It I, pains me to a little bit because I know that the chemicals involved are not amazing for the environment, but... Well, a a good friend of mine um, and uh, previous guest on this podcast, Doug Kay, I've got to get him back on. Uh, He wished me a happy birthday yesterday. So that was nice. Uh, He's still around and thinking of me. Happy birthday. I forgot. Sorry. Ah, thank you. On Twitter. That's okay. Uh, (laughs) But uh, (laughs) uh, uh, he made me a print of one of my snowflakes that he used the platinum palladium process to create. And uh, I still have it in storage in Canada. Can't wait to have it here on the wall in Bulgaria. Um, but there's something valuable about that being a chemical process that I, I don't know if that the value in that is going to die with our generation, Andy. I don't know if, if my daughter's generation coming up is going to care one way or the other about that. I hope they do. But uh, I, I think that, that that's a shift that might happen as well. I, th- I think they will. I think we're going to become so exhausted by the kind of ephemerality of, of digital and the uncertainty of what's manufactured and what's you know actually real that we will continue to want these you know more physical processes to be present in our lives. So yeah, and and right now I'm you know I'm playing around with Polaroid emulsion lifts and. Um, in my first attempts at uh, at printing at home. So uh, my, my daughter yeah. loves our Polaroid Go, right? And yeah. um, film is damn expensive for that thing. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but hey, it, it, it makes the child happy. And it's that experience of seeing the, the actual tangible photo come out. It was not ever seen on a screen. Um, so I think there is hope. There is hope, but I think that we're going down, tumbling down the slippery slope of AI based on a tweet that I saw from you uh, a couple of days ago. And uh, this is a tool that you discovered. You didn't label it in the tweet, so I need more information on you, but you did some amazing sleuthing here. I want to give you some credit for this, where you found an AI software designed for retouching portraits. And they showed a before picture of a, uh, a woman with a lot of blemishes all over her skin. And then the after photo had most of those blemishes removed, a token one here or there still remaining, making a human body feel natural. Um, but your discovery was that the after photo was actually a stock photo or one found on Unsplash, and the before photo that showed all the blemishes was what was applied with the AI technology purporting to do exactly the opposite. So kudos to you for discovering this. Who done it? Are we naming the company? We're, yeah, I, I want them okay. to be named. Okay, so this this is a company called Evoto, E-V-O-T-O. 
www.sapiensdigital.ai, and you can go to their mm-hmm. website, and they have, uh, I think they're a Singaporean company. I assume they're new because there's no company history. Um, and on their website, they've got various features listed for their software, one of which is portrait retouching. And you click through and you have a look at their various uh, examples of how it can reduce dark circles and smooth face wrinkles and remove body defects and match skin tone and stuff like this. And I looked at their before and after, and I'm always skeptical about before, after images that are shown on company websites, whether it's denoising software or AI software. I'm always, always skeptical. I think that's a healthy way to be. So I, I tried to download the image and I couldn't because it's you know stuck behind this before after slider. So I just screen grabbed it and pasted it into TinEye. And within five or six results, I discovered that the photo originally existed from about three years ago on Unsplash. And clicking through, I discovered that the model does not have anywhere near the amount of, uh, I mean, it's a clean photo. I don't think it's necessarily a retouched photo on Unsplash, but the uh, the skin imperfections on the before image that's on the Avoto website is, is quite severe. Um, so what I hope is that Ivoto, in good conscience, got in touch with the photographer and said, could you send us the original unretouched image and then we're going to run it through our software? And I hope that that's what has happened. Uh, so I'm not necessarily calling out this company and saying, hey, what's going on? Um, I did tweet them and say, would it be ethical to do that? What's the story here? And they didn't reply. In their defense, if you go on their Instagram uh, page, you will find lots of actual real use cases, uh, people sending them their stuff, I assume. And I mean, the the retouching is, is quite brutal, I have to say. Um, but yeah, the, the idea that they're using fake before after images, I wonder how prevalent this is in our industry. Um, I hope... I mean, it's funny, there is a second example further down the page of someone's teeth uh, being fixed. So again, it's from Unsplash. And again, the original image on Unsplash, she has quite nice teeth. And then the version that's on the Evoto website, bad teeth beforehand, and then terrifyingly perfect teeth uh, in the- I, I have terrible teeth. My front teeth all need to be completely redone. They calcified when I was Same. young and, and it's all fillings on the fronts of my teeth. Um, and now the edges of those fillings uh, gets coffee stains and all sorts of stuff. So uh, a lengthy trip to the dentist is required, but maybe AI is the actual answer. May- maybe I could just look like I have perfect teeth and send them uh, my, uh, my grimace and see what, uh, what, what comes from that. But th- the point is that this AI stuff is so prevalent and there are so many companies playing in this space and some of them might be generating their own neural engines. Others are just licensing a technology from other people and repackaging it up for whatever they want to use it for. And it's not going to go away. Uh, we've talked about this a lot on this podcast, and I don't want to belabor that point too much. Um, but be skeptical of just about anything you see and any marketing that comes from that. And also know that um, we are, uh, I guess the legislation is starting to move in different ways. I think in the UK, there is uh, a law that is being discussed about uh, whether or not uh, you have to label AI imagery. And from Petapixel, I found that the copyright office, this is in the UK, uh, in the US, sorry, the US Copyright Office, uh, uh, refuses to register works entirely generated by AI. And uh, entirely is the key there. But um, wh- where do you see legislation catching up to the explosion of AI imagery? Because they, it looks like it's starting. But unless they move quicker, I, I think that AI is just going to move even faster uh, and we're going to lose control of it entirely. I don't know. I think it's impossible to predict. I really hope that there is more protection for the creative people whose work is being harvested by these uh, machines to produce this content. I hope that the artists, artists, I hope that the prompt writers creating these images understand that they are taking other people's artwork to create what they are creating. And 
I hope that they aren't, I mean, I really hope that copyright does not just land in their laps. I had uh, an interesting and slightly spicy exchange with photographer Tim Tadder uh, a couple of months ago, um, pointing out that he doesn't own his images. And he's like, uh, yes, I do. Because so obviously he's producing, he's really gone hardcore. And he's producing amazing, amazing images using, uh, I think, Midjourney. I said, but you, you, technically you don't own them. And he said, well, according to my IP lawyer, I do because I'm doing enough in the process for it to be a distinctive piece of work. And it's like, mm, I don't think that's necessarily the case. And I don't think that's going to be resolved anytime soon. You would so, have to have a case go through the court system and be decided on, on like with finality uh, to create a case law precedent to that end. And I, it, I, I don't think you're going to get that. I, I think that the, the AI, if something does go to, to, to court on that, I think that it would fall in favor of no copyright. Yeah, I mean, there are the legal precedents are starting to happen. So we've seen it recently with a couple of court cases in the US with uh, Richard Prince and um, I forget the other one. We, we've um, talked about them. But yeah. Yeah, you, you, no doubt. And yeah, at the uh, moment. It was it the, is, um, the Andy Warhol Prince photo. There we right? go. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and it's now leaning towards um, the original creators a bit more. Um, and my point to Tim Tadder was that at some point, yes, you might end up with full copyright of your imagery, but you know, be very aware that that might not be the case. That you might be, you know, betting a lot of time and energy onto something that eventually you don't own or don't own outright, and it's not going to get resolved anytime soon. We're going to be looking at court cases for the next five, ten years at least, I think. Potentially, yeah. I hope. I, I mean, mean, like you, yeah, you can sue Midjourney, and I'm, I'm sure some people are already going down that particular path. Um, but then, if you have work created by Midjourney that somebody else claims copyright on, do you own at least a partial instance of that copyright? And if it goes up into a gallery and sells for a million dollars, do you get a part of that because your work was trained on the AI engine, whether or not that is pennies of it, do you have a non-zero stake in it? I think that's one of the, the questions that will need to be answered as well, because that just uh, completely complicates the the ownership of this work, which might not have, uh, at the end of the day, a single owner. It might have either no owner or multiple owners, but I highly doubt that it would be just the one person that typed that prompt into Midjourney because you can get generative text, right? You can, you can use a, an AI engine to generate the prompt for you and then take that prompt and plug it into Midjourney. And who's to say that that didn't happen as part of the process as well? So murky waters. My yeah, I, I think my biggest fear is that this is going to go in front of judges who don't understand the technology and are being asked to make decisions that are going to have consequences for the next 50 years or something, maybe maybe even longer. And a lot of the money is going to be directed towards lawyers arguing for the likes of Tim Tadder because they're going to be backed by companies who are investing in the technology. It's going to be a lot of stuff coming out of Silicon Valley trying to assert the presence of AI imagery and AI technology in our society. And, you know, technology doesn't have a good reputation when it comes to exploiting the work of creative people. And I fear that with the money that these large companies that are backing AI technology are going to push us in a direction where we're just going to see smaller creatives, individual artists being exploited. Well said. Um, we all have to keep our finger on the pulse of this because it is changing quickly. And as artists, um, it uh, it's important to understand what the state of the art is, um, to use a, uh, uh, a double entendre. Um, so before we get into our picks of the week, um, I want to know where can people find Mr. Andy Day online and uh, where you would like people to follow your work, your musings, as I know I follow you on Twitter, but where should we send people to take a look at what yeah. you do? 
So my website is andyday.com. You can find my social media links there. Otherwise, you can find me on Instagram. Do you know what? I haven't posted on Instagram. I, a couple of months ago, my partner went away and I took the opportunity to have a bit more time to post every day on Instagram for about three weeks and my engagement dropped. And uh, I don't know whether that was the quality of the content or what, but I was just like... The algorithms, the algorithms. If you post something uh, and you haven't posted in a while everybody floods to you because it, it'll, it'll give people a notice saying, Andy hasn't posted in a while. Take a look at what mm. he's just posted and you get this massive flood. Um, and, and the same algorithms are at play, you know, on various systems. I think Facebook, if you uh, buy an ad, you get a massive influx of audience, even if you pay a very small amount for it. But if you pay that same amount the next time, you get a lot less. Yeah. Um, yeah. They, they know so- how the system works. I'm not heavily invested in in social media, which is fortunate. But you know, I, I thought, well, because people want to. I know people like my photos and want to see them. People who know me, who who like seeing the forest where I live and, and what I do out on, on the dog walk and stuff. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll share a load of stuff. And uh, yeah, it just really dented my enthusiasm, not for Instagram, but just for sharing generally, which was a bit sad. And Twitter, unfortunately, has kind of gone the same way uh, with the uh, you know what's been happening with, with with the company over the last six months or so my enthusiasm for sharing work there has disappeared a little bit um so yeah you can find me on twitter i'm kiel k-i-e-l-l there's a long and boring story as to why that's my name on twitter and similarly on instagram i'm kiel Graham for again boring reasons but search andy day or you know check the show notes i'm sure they will be link. the links will be in the show notes at photogeekweekly.com thank you sir and uh, and of course you you write for f stoppers and uh, who knows if you're reading random industry text that has no associated author you might be reading andy day's handiwork <laughs> behind the scenes um but uh, it's great to have you on the podcast and i'm really curious what you've brought to the table for a pick of the week so I happened to be sitting in front of my computer when the Insta360 Go 3 was announced. And suddenly, YouTube hammered me with the notifications that something exciting has been launched because, of course, all of the uh, tech influencers suddenly posted very similar videos. But I happened to watch the Casey Neistat videos, the only one I watch. I don't watch too many of his videos these days. And I he tend not be to watch bit, too many. I don't know. Extreme, I, I guess. But. Yeah, I I enjoy his stuff, and obviously he has this, you know, a reputation for using uh, go, you know, small action cameras in his filmmaking. And I was like, well, if anyone's going to tell me what this camera is like, he is going to tell me what this camera is like. And it's funny because just over, yeah, maybe just under a year ago, I was sent a GoPro Hero Eleven Black, Hero Black Eleven, the latest GoPro. And, ask, uh, and F-stoppers asked me to review it. I was like, well, I don't really, I've tried to use these cameras. I find the, the experience frustrating and I don't really have a good purpose for them, but they are useful from time to time. I thought, well, I can write a review. And, you know, it was an incremental upgrade and not much happening. It's like 5.7K video, you know, it doesn't overheat. It's like, okay. And it's like, oh, and a slightly different shape sensor. And my take was like, have we, have we, reached the stage where it's just going to be these incremental upgrades year on year and we're not going to find any new innovation within this style of camera right i mean sure the 360 cameras have come along and they've completely changed the space and now obviously with mobile phones being waterproof and with indestructible cases you know if you wanted to go to a water park and film your kids splashing around five ten years ago you'd need a gopro or something similar nowadays you take your phone and there's so much competition to the GoPro action cams as well. And suddenly, Insta360 has pulled out the Go 3. And I don't know if you've seen this camera, but there is a... I have, yeah, that, that it's module. separatable, yeah. Yeah, and it separates out. Uh, maybe I'm just a bit too wowed by, by the technology here, but I just like the fact that they've innovated, they've done something different. You can use the action pod, which is kind of like the housing that this tiny little Go 3 module slots into and it's a bit like an airpod so it recharges it it gives you more battery time it's got internal storage and you can and it allows the action camera itself like the 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 camera recording portion of it 
to drop in size dramatically, which yes. could introduce new use cases as well. And and I don't know how far away it can get from the the socket that it goes into. Obviously, the camera itself then doesn't have a screen. The screen is on the back of the module that it plugs into. Uh, not sure what the range is on that, if it will record even if it's out of range. I think everything is internal to the little smaller piece that contains the lens and sensor, and obviously a small battery in there too. Um, but if... If, if it works the way I think it can, you could do a lot of unique things with that simply due to the size I, reduction. I think so. I think so. And that's what got me excited. And, you know, I, I messaged the, one of the editors on F-Stoppers as soon as I watched the video. I said, if you've got, if you've got shares in GoPro, sell them because I'm not. <laughs> and I, I hope GoPro has something exciting coming up. I think the, the, the new hero will be out in, in the next couple of months. Um, it hasn't been promising for GoPro over the last five years or so. Their share price... Yeah, they've been struggling. ...cratered. Uh, and they had the drone that came out that they had to recall. And, you know, they... You know, I contacted them and said, what's happening with the 360 cameras? And they, they gave a pretty dull response to that and saying, you know, we remain in the 360 camera market. And it's like, well, barely. So, yeah, yeah. I fear for them a little bit, and I'm excited to see this new product. I don't have it. I want to buy one. I don't need one. I don't know what I would use it for. It looks like a lot of fun. Um, the, what's interesting also is that while GoPro is pushing the resolution each year and changing the size of the sensor, the max resolution on this is only 2.7K. And right. why do you need more? It's fine. Like You can be creative with that. If you want to drop the resolution yeah. to give yourself more creative options, then I think that's a good reason. Yeah, like I, I use, um, was it Zongyi Optics? Um, has a, an 85 millimeter uh, 1x to 5x macro lens. And they uh, optically engineered it to have a much, much greater working distance um, than the Canon MPE 65 millimeter. But in doing that, uh, the same thing with microscope objectives is the longer working distance objectives that actually let you use reflected light um, suffer in their resolving uh, capabilities. The closer you are to the subject, the better you're able to resolve those fine details at higher magnifications. And so um, I, I had used that lens for photographing snowflakes. And the further working distance actually was a little bit less useful in some use cases. But in others, it allowed me to get light reflecting off the surface of the snowflake in a much wider range of angles so that I was able to capture uh, one in my portfolio is a double-ended um, uh, uh, arrowhead snowflake. That's the word. That is the only time that one of them has ever been photographed with pristine ends on it. And I was able to get it with reflected light off of the surface. And it was only capable with that lens, even though I gave up resolving power to get it. So uh, long story short, I agree with you. Excellent. It's only on Photo Geek Weekly. Will you get a comparison between the Insta360 Go 3 and an obscure Chinese manufactured macro lens? That's amazing. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> um, but also, I mean, I, I kind of sometimes run out of picks because I, I don't buy gear on a regular basis. I only get stuff when it's useful for me. And uh, I'm going to be recording uh, a, a video for an upcoming Kelby One conference uh, with um, On One as the, the main focus on that. And I'm going to be doing a live uh, shoot here in my studio and I want to have the ability to show people exactly what my camera is seeing as my camera is seeing it um, and there's a lot of ways to do this but the easiest and most effective way that I have found is this little tool from Atomos um, this is the first generation product it's called Atomos Connect they've now reused that term for a much bigger beefier attachment for their ninja products um, they now call it the Atomos Nexus uh, in their second iteration I got the first one and I'm fine with it. The second one must just be higher quality, better. I'm not sure what the differences are. Both of them just have an HDMI port on one end and a USB port on the other. And it plugs in and appears to your computer as a camera. So, and it just takes the exact screen from whatever HDMI output you have set on your camera. So you've got an option uh, within at least my cameras for you to uh, disable the screen overlay. 
and this is useful if you're using the HDMI output for direct external recording. Um, but in this case, you can flip that on so people can see all the camera settings and the histograms or any other display information that I would have on the back of that camera. Now, this device can turn your, uh, your main uh, shooting camera into a webcam. You could use it for educational purposes as I will be doing a multi-camera shoot and I'll have this, I'll have the, uh, the, the, the webcam and I can move the, the webcam onto the table and you can see how everything kind of comes together differently. And I think that it is a very useful, simple tool to connect your camera to your computer for broadcast or education or any other purpose. The Atmos Nexus is the current version of it. Uh, but if you can get the older Connect one as well, the simple tiny little device, little USB dongle, it works like a charm. Should we mention the price of that? I'm curious. Uh, it was under 100 bucks when I bought it. I can't remember nice. what the current one is going for. Uh, uh, $69 US for the current oh, that's, uh, that's, edition of it. Yeah, that's pretty so, good. And just to mention, I think the, the Go 3 that we were talking about is something, it's under $400. I think it's $380, which I think is, I mean, I want to buy one. I'm not going to buy one. That seems like a pretty good price to me. <laughs> it does, especially if you have a use for it. If you can think in your yeah. mind, it's like, okay, well, this format lets me do something that my current GoPro or whatever else you have cannot do, then let yourself explore that creative journey so long as you've got the budget for it. Because if it can do it, there's a lot... It, there's, I remember being told uh, early on in my photographic explorations that there's nothing new under the sun, basically. No matter what you try to do, somebody else has done it before you. And that wasn't true then, and it's not true now. Creative abilities are continuing to evolve with the technology that we have at our disposal. And when a new piece of technology comes about, you'll inherently have new creativity that it opens the door for. We, to circle back to the very beginning of our conversation, talking about gear and everything else like that, um, would I buy every iteration of a product? No, I've got the iPhone 13 Pro. I didn't go for the 14. I probably won't go for the 15 unless it dramatically improves the way that I use the device. And, and I'll wait until the 16 or 17 or whatever until the screen cracks or the battery dies. And even then, I might just replace that because it's good enough. It does what I need it to do. But if you can do something new, and you have that idea already in your mind about what this is going to allow you to accomplish, I say punch that ticket. I agree. If you can afford it. Yes, yes, if you can afford it. <laughs> All right, well, that brings that us to the end of another episode. Andy, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. This has been a lot of fun. I'm, I'm truly honored to be here. Uh, well, I'll have to have you back on at some point in the future, so long as you are willing. And uh, and I encourage anybody that loved it or hate it to give me feedback on uh, on a new guest host. I want to get some fresh blood in here, as well as having back all the old favorites. So, Andy, thank you for beginning that process. And to everybody listening, you know what I'm about to say. It's time to get out and shoot. Shoot.